Ephemeral is a production of iHeartRadio. It's hard to overstate the impact of the telephone. In the last 150 years, this communications technology has altered the land, the sky, the makeup of outer space. And if you trace the contours of history, you'll often find the telephone in places you wouldn't expect, a background character in stories inspiring and despicable alike. I'm not here to approve of history. I'm just here to tell you the story. This is Elizabeth Cobbs. I'm Elizabeth Cobbs. I'm a historian. Do you want me to say more? She is, and was being, incredibly modest. I hold the Melbourne Glasscock Chair in American History at Texas A&M. I'm the author of eight books. I'm also a senior fellow at Stanford University's Hoover Institution. I made two documentary films for PBS. I was on the Historical Advisory Committee of the U.S. State Department previously for six years. Well, I sat on the Pulitzer Prize uh, jury for history. I always think that sounds, I think that sounds more impressive than it was. Well, yeah, don't ask for my CV. For the initial spark that would come to connect, well, almost everything, one has to look back to the mid-19th century and a young Scottish-American immigrant named Alexander Graham Bell. His mother was deaf, and he found that he was the only member of his family who could really communicate with his mother, especially as her hearing got worse and worse and finally went altogether. He would press his lips to her forehead and talk. He became a teacher of elocution a language teacher, and began teaching at a school for the deaf in Boston, carrying out his self-imposed mission, this interest he had going back to his mother's disability. So he had this great empathy for people who couldn't hear. And he became very interested in the way that vibrations communicated electrically, as it would turn out. It was that interest which led him to experiment. The telephone was introduced in 1876 at the Philadelphia Centennial. Saying famously, Come here, Watson. (laughs) He was talking with his assistant, communicating across several rooms. So it was a way to link people, to bring humans in contact with each other. Initially, it seems like a parlor trick. And in fact, Bell offered to sell his innovation to a telegraph company. Another important job handled quickly and efficiently by Western Union Telegram. And they said, oh, no, who's going to use a telephone? (laughs) Hello? Hello? To people who are in profit-making enterprises, they're loath to spend money on something that seems gimmicky. But to the average person, the immediate relevance of this technology was quite apparent. Within a very short period of time, a year or two, people started to put together what became known as PBX systems, internal telephone systems where it's like a closed circuit. Welcome to the Hotel Earl. May I help you, sir? Like the old-fashioned hotel where someone is getting calls in at some central exchange, some central switchboard, and connecting people in rooms. Or within a military base. Or a company. Yeah, good morning. Uh, no. So PBX systems were the first ones to get going, but then right away, people started to develop subscription systems. You would subscribe to a telephone system and you would be able to talk to other mutual subscribers. 
it wouldn't be within your same company, like a PBX system. Anybody could join and could get a subscription, and suddenly you'd be talking to all kinds of folks. Now, for that reason, a lot of the initial telephone systems, you could only talk with people within your system. After a dozen or so years, there was a universalization of the system. They basically put all the systems together. So even if you got telephone service from, say, Verizon, you could call somebody who had AT&T. American Telephone and Telegraph, that is, the company that Bell founded. For the first half of their history, telephone systems depended on an operator. Most of the other parts of the technology are really, you know, they're technological. They're machines. You set them up. You maintain them. They run on their own until they break, and then some guy comes in and fixes it, right? A repair person. This is record testing the new circuit. Coming through all right? But the one human being that was necessary for every single call to be made in this era was the operator. Hello, operator. This was in a period in which telephones didn't have dials. So imagine what they called a, a candlestick phone. It was a, like a black um, candlestick, really. At the base, there was no dial. So what would happen is you would simply lift off the black receiver and you would speak into it. And what would happen is that by lifting it, it would trigger an electrical charge. The act of lifting the receiver would trigger a very tiny electrical charge, which would go down the wire to the exchange, the telephone exchange, wherever that was, whether it was your PBX exchange in the basement of your hotel or an exchange across town operated by AT&T. Then what would happen is a light would come on on the switchboard of the operator. Or sometimes, depending on the way the switchboard was set up, a flap would drop down. And that's where our current term, a dropped call, comes from. Switch to the network with the fewest dropped calls. So this flap would drop or the light would light up and the operator would say, number please. And she would actually (laughs) try to say it as best I could because they were trained in a very specific way of where your voice goes up and where your voice goes down and how long you pause. Number please. Thank you. It was the time of Taylorism where everything is very scientifically managed. These operators have been trained to provide courteous and speedy service. They wanted the human beings, in a way, to be as precise as the machines. If you, like me, weren't born before the implementation of direct distance dialing, that is, you've never picked up a phone and done anything besides dial, you've probably seen this in films. Rooms crowded with switchboards the size of desks or even walls, and cables everywhere, draped over and twisted around one another, hands in continuous motion, unplugging and reaching and replugging. Perhaps you've also noticed, telephone operators are almost exclusively portrayed by women. In telegraph services, you would have what they call telegraph boys, often young men, and they would hear the Morse code and they would transcribe the message and then the message would be run by a messenger over to wherever it was going. And of course, telegraphs are very clumsy for that reason because it's not a spontaneous communication, It's it's a process. So when they first started using telephones and they needed operators to switch the calls, you know, to take one call incoming and switch it to the correct plug, which would take it to the right person. Hello. They initially tried using young men and they found out a couple of problems. Hello, what do you want? These boys were just not that polite. They didn't say things like, number please. <laughs> they did feel that the women just provided more consistent service. They were more consumer friendly. 
But more importantly, women were really good at it. Long distance. Long distance. Long distance. It was a very high-paced, very stressful job with a lot of multitasking involved, to use a kind of modern term. Words are coming in your ear. You're talking to somebody else. You're checking the wires to make sure that other people have completed their calls. You're also making notes about how long the call lasted because you're going to charge the customer based on how long the call lasted, note where the call went to, and you're doing this with a board of 50 calls that are coming in all at the same time. One woman described looking at these women's hands was like looking at hummingbirds darting all around. And you are being very polite the whole time, and you are never, ever, ever losing your temper. For some reason, the women were just really good at this. A lot of men resisted the job, too, because it was so identified with women by this point. It was almost kind of a sex-segregated occupation. Men who worked in the telephone offices in the United States were almost always exclusively the supervisors, because men were considered very good at supervising women, but they were not very good at the phones themselves. Well, I can't understand a word you're saying. Oh, a boy. Well, congratulations. In the 1910s, telephone operation was one of a rather limited number of professions available to women. Women's rights had actually improved some. They had. Women could own property, oh my gosh, and they could sign contracts. And the uh, age of consent of marriage had been moved up from 10 to about 16 in most states. So big strides. <laughs> big strides, and yet women didn't have elemental political rights. You were defined by the man in your life, literally. Your nationality was defined by his. They couldn't vote, of course. The right to vote in particular was opposed because people thought that it would make women less womanly, that you would lose your girl status or something, and that men would be less manly, and so you can't have that. The other reason was that government, in its most elemental way, it's about the physical defense of the nation. That's what governments do. They defend the people. And if you can't pick up a gun and be a soldier, well, then you really shouldn't be in government. That one is kind of the extension of the other. The interesting thing about women soldiers is that one of the things they help to prove is that women can defend their government. In 1914, as war erupted across Europe, the world's largest neutral nation pledged not to get involved. I know, the United States is the world's largest neutral nation. Well, it is hard to imagine now, but it was true historically for most of our history. Only until about 70 years ago. The United States had a long-standing policy that went back to George Washington's farewell address, where he said it should be the great rule of the United States, I'm paraphrasing now, to not intervene in other people's quarrels. Yes, the United States defended itself and sometimes attacked others, but it was always explicitly because of something that was in our national interest. So the idea of intervening in other people's quarrels to help them resolve their problems was not something we had ever done. Woodrow Wilson initially said this is a faraway thing with which we have nothing to do. It can't touch us, which in a way he was really right. The United States has always been 
benefited by the fact that we have these giant oceans. In fact, that's one reason why people do look to us is because we're kind of a global last wild place, so to speak. You know, we're, we're less likely to be attacked than anybody else. But in April of 1917, the United States broke with over 100 years of tradition and declared war on Germany. So once the United States declared war, then there's a question of how do you go about it? The United States had never been in a major foreign war, had never had allies in a war before, other than when the French allied with us to help us get our revolution through. The man they tapped for this difficult job was decorated General John Pershing. A new kind of war is loose in the world. General John Pershing was the kind of man from central casting, you know, <laughs> square-jawed, tall, steely blue eyes looking off into the distance. He was also a very competent officer. He had served in the West in command of a group of African-American soldiers, which were nicknamed Buffalo Soldiers. He had served in the Spanish-American War. He had actually led the famous Pershing expedition to try to nab Pancho Villa from Mexico when Pancho Villa attacked the United States. By the way, Pancho Villa escapes. When he finished grammar school and got his high school diploma, he didn't have a job, and he, so he I took a job teaching at, as would have been described at the time, a school for colored children. Later, when he was a drill instructor at West Point, he was taunted because he had led black troops. West Point, of course, at that time, all white, all male, and the white cadets didn't like him, and so they thought they would get back at him, and he got a nickname. Uh, later, this derogatory nickname was commuted to Black Jack. He was known as Black Jack for the rest of his entire career. Run in place. We often think of the military as a conservative institution, but it's also the case that when people are trying to kill you, that you generally want the person at your side, on your side, who is best at their job. And I think that that's what Blackjack was like. He was somebody who recognized that people could be very good at their jobs, and they should be respected for that, and a place made for them. On how to build and install a U.S. Army abroad, Pershing was largely given carte blanche. He shipped out in June of 1917, arrived in England, and made his way to France. Pershing, when he first gets there, is largely setting up what's going to happen. And the doughboys, as they're called, don't really begin arriving in numbers until the 1918 spring. He takes, by the way, with him telephone equipment, knowing that the French have very little, very good telephone equipment. Telephones had been invented here, so all of the best telecommunications technology is on this side of the Atlantic. So they take some of that with them in the first ship that sails. They get over to France, and they spend about five, six months just sort of setting up and figuring out what they're going to do. And one of the things that becomes really clear early on is that they cannot, doggone it, make a dang telephone call. The Army is operating largely PBX boards, but to get outside the Army to call anywhere else, you have to connect with a local exchange. The local exchange is run by a French person, and they all speak, believe it or not, they all speak French. Hello. So one of the problems for these American doughboys is that they're connecting with French operators. They can't speak the language. And the other problem, too, is that men just have not proved very good at this job. In November of 1917, 
Pershing sends a memo back home, and he says, I have got to have women operators, get them to France as soon as you can, make sure they're in uniform, put them under command, and get them over here. So immediately, the War Department sends out press releases all over the country saying, we want women operators. Women are needed to go over there, to quote the George M. Cohan song. What was put out was that women were needed as soldiers. Women would serve in uniform. They should leave their civilian garb at home. They would be subject to the same military discipline as the men, making the same kind of contribution, as important a contribution as even men who went over the top, as they said, over the tops of the trenches in World War I. Beginning in early December of 1917, there are all these newspapers all around the country, you know, from, from Atlanta to Seattle, Washington, asking women to volunteer. 7,600 women volunteer for the first 100 positions. So 7,600 women volunteer. They do it so fast, the Army doesn't even have applications, so then it takes them a few weeks to get that on board. One of the things is that they had to speak French without hesitation. They had to be able to simultaneously translate. Pronunciation had to be very, very good. They had to be very quick-witted. They had to be very good listeners. They had to be just very adept physically at these operations. They did sort of assume anybody who had all those kind of native characteristics could be taught telephone operating. And so they also trained them in that. And some people washed out of that. Uh, in the end, they, they did get the people who were the very best, whether by natural aptitude or by practice. The keenness of American citizens to volunteer for the war effort speaks volumes about the attitudes of the time. There was really a sense of public service. The idea was that you were to do for your government. It wasn't what your government was to do for you. The notion that America was a democracy, that it was its government was its people, was still a very present sentiment. Sons and daughters of pioneers, cousins of the people who built America. Especially because there was no professional army, or a very tiny one. So if the nation needed defending, it meant, well, gosh, it's up to us. It's our nation. We're the ones who, who've got to do this. Almost 500 switchboard operators had become the first female soldiers of the U.S. Army. 226 would cross the Atlantic with the Signal Corps. Women served in myriad other capacities for the war effort. The U.S. Navy enlisted women for the first time to serve domestically. Red Cross nurses and YMCA volunteers risked life and limb abroad. But the Hello Girls, as these operators would be called, were special. They have been vetted by the Army. They have been investigated repeatedly by Army intelligence. Because keep in mind, these people are going to be handling national secrets literally in their hands and through their headsets. They can hear every command that's going to go out because in World War I, almost all commands retreat, fire. The actual business end of war is handled by the telephone and through telephone operators. One of the most important persons is Grace Banker, who was a 25-year-old woman. She had been a telephone supervisor in New York City. 
recent college graduate of Barnard College, all-women's college associated with Columbia University, which didn't yet admit women. One week she applies to go into the Signal Corps, and she doesn't hear back, and she writes them again a week later and says, you know, I, I hope you didn't lose my letter. And then the week after that, she's inducted and fingerprinted and told, oh, actually, you're going to be in charge of the first contingent. There had never been women soldiers, so there weren't women officers. So they immediately looked around and said, okay, well, you know, who might be officer material? And here's a young woman who's done this very rare thing at the time, which is to become a college graduate. Grace Banker's good friend, Merle Egan, was from Montana. They didn't know each other. They met going in, but they became good friends. She always described herself as a stubborn gal. I also have a, I have a particular weakness for, I might say, Louise and Raymond Le Breton. This was a—oh, a, you do, too. They were the sisters who were just—you know, they were—well, they weren't very truthful at times. They lied like a rug. They wanted to get in the war. They were of French descent. They spoke French fluently. Louise was 18, and she told the Army she was 21, and her sister Raymond was 16 and told the Army she was 18. When Army intelligence interviewed them, as all these women were interviewed multiple times, Army intelligence reports wrote back, and of course I saw the reports in their personnel files, they're very mature for their ages. We think they're going to do very well. <laughs> they were very mature for the ages they had lied about. There were others. There were just so many wonderful women with all these crazy nicknames for each other. It's like, you know, there was Esther Tootsie to you, <laughs> Tootsie Fresnel, and Suzanne Prevost, who was known as the Wild Cat. And, you know, it's funny. I think often we look back at people from previous generations and we assume that they were all just kind of prudish and that they were all just very staid and sedate and never uttered cuss words and such things. And they were different. Their values were different. But they were just as young and vibrant as any millennial, doing what they believed in, doing what they loved, you know, wanting to be a part of the wider world. While the women, by the way, were being inducted and trained and shipped to France, internally, in the Army's own internal administration, there was a conversation that went on for about five months where the Army ultimately says, you know what, we're going to consider them contract workers. So although the Army gave them no contracts and, in fact, had them swear the same oath as all of the men swore who were inducted, the women never knew that the Army, at least internally, and its upper bureaucracies did not see them as full soldiers. The women thought they were. Let's be clear, they were. In early March of 1918, the first contingent of 33 women ship out. They all went to France, which itself was a little dicey because you know your ship could be sunk at any moment. They're on constant alert until they get to England. You're wearing your life jacket even to bed. When they arrive, Paris itself is under bombardment. The first night they're there, they have to go down into the bomb shelters because there's incoming from the German artillery, which is now within 20 miles of Paris. It's rainy, it's cold, it's freezing. They walk out to work and the mud is so deep that they have to put what they call duck boards over the muck. Once the battles start, they're working sometimes around the clock. There's bombs going off, there's artillery, concussions are shaking their boards. When the German guns got so close, 
the windows would blow out. At one point, the group of men rush in and tell the women, you've got to get out. And the women say, we will as soon as you do. You're getting out of here. I'm not getting out of here. This is my job. Towards the end of the war, at one point, the women were, and the men, were in these very flimsy wooden barracks that looked more or less like chicken coops that the French had left behind after the Battle of Verdun that they move into and operate. They both sleep in them, and their telephone equipment is in them. And, and they mess together, meaning they have breakfast, lunch, and dinner together, the women and the men, the officers. The prison of war camp is right next door, too. And the Army Field Evacuation Hospital is right next door. So they see all the people coming back torn apart. In fact, in their spare time, the women often went into the hospitals to talk to the men because it was very cheering to the men to see an American woman a face, you know, to hold their hands as they're dying. And it was, they didn't write about it a lot, but they were, that's what they were doing. Um, you know, they had these descriptions they wrote in their diaries of these scenes they saw in those hospitals, which as one, as Grace Banker said, would make a pacifist of anyone. And she was a soldier. At one point, a German prisoner of war knocks over an oil stove and their barracks goes up in flames. The women lose all of their possessions. And right next door, they're connecting telephone calls in a very similar building made out of the same chicken coop kind of construction. And it starts filling with smoke. They refuse to leave, and the men are climb on top of the building and pouring water on it, trying to preserve, obviously, not only the women, but also this equipment. Because this American-made equipment is not available anywhere else in the world. It's been brought across the ocean for this very purpose. Finally, the situation is too dire, and they tell the women, get out. We're now ordering you to get out. They pull out the equipment into the, a nearby field. Somehow they manage to get the fire out put the equipment back in, and they start up operating again within half an hour. Hello, operator. I, I mentioned half an hour because General George Squire later reported to Congress that in a modern war, if communications, meaning basically the telephone, goes down for even an hour, the whole military machine collapses. So they were only down for 30 minutes, and the women felt pretty proud about that. A renaissance of human engineering made the First World War one of the deadliest in history. It's the first war of the Industrial Revolution. It's the first technological war. So all the amazing, cool stuff that's been invented in the 19th century gets applied to killing other human beings. Planes and motorized transport and rapid-fire guns and telephones. This is the first big war with modern communications. Unreliable wartime communication dated back to antiquity. Smoke signals, passenger pigeons, flags, lights, and sail signaling each had their drawbacks. People think, well, radio, that was the hot new technology. And it was, but it was very clumsy. It took three mules to drag a radio set to the field. Radio transmissions were wireless, and so therefore they could be intercepted. And also, if there were a lot of messages coming from one area, even if you couldn't decode it, you would at least know that a lot of messages are coming from this one place, which means it's headquarters. The other problem with radios is that they, as a form of communication, they did not yet carry voices. So radios at this time were a form of wireless telegraph. It was Morse code. So it required someone to decode the radio transmission. So the telephone... It's amazing. Goodbye, Alexander. Goodbye, honey boy. Anybody can talk. The other person hears immediately what's being said and understands it. It's wired. 
which means that if you want to intercept a call, you have to find the specific wire which goes to the specific place and then tap into it. Now, even the tapping into it would create a kind of funny sound on the wires. An experienced operator could often tell. And the other thing is that it was easy and lightweight. You could put wire on a spindle and run it out across the battlefield. The best method is to carry the reel and drop the wire as you go. Jumping craters and getting to the other side and making sure that your men have communication at all times back home. This method is the fastest of all where it can be used. AT&T put whole battalions of men in France. AT&T line workers and supervisors and engineers, they all went together as what were called the Bell Battalions. At the center of it all, all that wire and all that equipment, it doesn't mean anything if you do not have an operator. In her book on the Hello Girls, Elizabeth writes, telephones became the central nervous system of the U.S. Army. Switchboards were its synapses. The Army did have to use men sometimes, and they found that it took the average infantryman 60 seconds to complete a call. It took the average woman 10 seconds. So in wartime, the difference between 60 seconds and 10 seconds is the difference between living or getting your head blown off. Even after the U.S. officially entered the conflict, more than a year passed before American troops engaged in combat. General Pershing felt that the most significant blow to German morale and to the German war machine would be to hit all at once with a full-sized American army. America had no army, so it had to recruit and train all those men and equip them and ship them across the ocean. It just took a long time. It's not until the fall of 1918. The war has now gone on longer than four years, and the Americans are finally there en masse. There were seven women who accompanied General Pershing at the great American battles of the war, which were the two big battles towards the end, San Miel and the Battle of Musargan. Pershing needed women, wanted women there, because this is really where the rubber meets the road. The few women who were initially taken to that first great American battle at San Miel, it was kind of an experiment. Their secret orders were just written as a note. We have that note now. It was just recently unearthed. And it says, secret orders to Miss Prevost, Miss Fresnel, Miss Banker. You're going to the front and get ready to lead a roving life. They had gas masks on their chairs. They had trench helmets, which they were required to wear outdoors at all times. They were trained in how to use pistols should their position be overwhelmed. That was a very short battle. It was actually only really a three- to four-day battle. At the end of it, General Pershing actually spied the women. Things were calming down, and some of the women were walking down the street. And he said to Colonel Parker Hitt, their supervisor, how are the women doing? And Hitt said, well, let's go across the street and ask them. So Pershing crosses the street, and the women salute him. And, and he says, how's it going, ladies? And they said, very well, sir. And he said, is there anything more you want? And they, they said, we just want to be as close to the action as we can get. He, at that point, turned to Colonel Hitt, and he said, take them where they want to go. It was at that point that then they're committed to going to the Battle of Musargan, which goes on for 47 days. And is this epic-scale battle that was what helps to end the war. The Battle of Mozargon would put all their logistics to the test. Fresh American soldiers marched into battle alongside their European allies. 
they would hit the Germans with everything they had. Everybody ramps up to execute the last engagements of the war, and even then, nobody knows the Germans are fantastic fighters. In some ways, Pershing is as deluded as all the other officers of the French and the German and the British. He does what they did, throws bodies against protected trenches, uh, against machine gun emplacements. You know, people are mowed down. The Battle of Musargon itself is just one of the bloodiest battles in all of American history, one of the longest battles. Hello, operator. The tempo in the switchboard room, the women said, you, you just can't imagine it, just cannot imagine the speed of this. There's all this effort to just get the men into place. And then, kabam, it starts. And the women are fielding calls this whole time. Calls of all sorts, including friendly fire. We've now overrun our position and our men behind us. We're now firing into where Americans have advanced. And so our own troops are starting to get hit. And how do they communicate that? They get on their telephones and they call back to the switchboard operators who put them into command, into touch with the artillery command, who tells the men, stop. And there are also air bases. They don't go up in the planes until they get the phone call, which says, okay, now you go, and this is where you're going to go. So everything is coordinated through these telephones. Nobody knew how long it would go. Most people thought the war would probably last another year into 1919. But the American presence really did help. And ultimately, it's the combined efforts of all the armies, the French, the British, the Americans, that convinces the Germans that the war is just never going to go their way. The war ends at the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month. On November 11th, 1918, Germany signed the armistice, ending World War I. But for the Hello Girls and millions more women across the Atlantic, the battle at home raged on. Since at least the Seneca Falls Convention of 1848, activists in America had been formally petitioning for a federal amendment to enfranchise women. By the 1910s, not much had changed. There's a tipping point for the 19th Amendment. Simply, it is World War I, women's participation in World War I, which was much broader than the telephone operators. Women had served as nurses, as volunteers at home as well. And yes, on the battlefields. In that way, women's rights and their women's right to vote is in parallel with the earlier right of African-American men to vote because they pick up arms in the Civil War. Similarly, at the beginning of the United States, men who didn't own property picked up muskets at Lexington and Concord. President Wilson, who initially resisted entering the war, had also positioned himself against women's suffrage. Woodrow Wilson, who had staunchly opposed a national amendment to the Constitution to enfranchise women, he comes around to their point of view. And in fact, he gives this beautiful speech to the U.S. Senate in October of 1918, where, I'm paraphrasing, but he says something like, are we going to ask for and take all that women can give and say we still do not see what rights this gives them? 
And he noted the fact that by this point, 20 other countries, largely because of World War I, had enfranchised women. Bolshevik Russia, Germany, <laughs> Great Britain, Canada, you know, all kinds of countries had enfranchised women. And he said, are we going to be the last to learn the lesson? Think of the irony of that. Here, the first modern democracy, a republic, and it's one of the last to give women the vote. As he says in his speech to the U.S. Senate, we're going to have to resign the leadership of liberal minds around the world if we cannot do this thing that everybody else is doing, if we cannot honor the citizenship of women. One of the reasons why he's so reluctant to do so has much less to do with gender than it has to do with race. Race is actually the uninvited guest to the party, as it is so often in American politics. A lot of the opposition to a federal suffrage amendment for women is twofold. First of all, southern states do not want the federal government telling them pretty much anything, but especially about voting rights. The second problem is that the federal suffrage amendment is worded that it will include all women. So this will mean African-American women can vote too. And the really remarkable thing, when you actually read the records of the U.S. Congress at this time, again and again in the U.S. Congress, it's said very openly and repeatedly, well, we all know that the 15th Amendment was a mistake, meaning the, the amendment that enfranchised black men. And there is not a single moment in the U.S. congressional record where someone stands up and says, no, the 15th Amendment, that was right. Okay, I might not agree with votes for women, but certainly African-American men should vote. So there was this turning away from what had been accomplished in the Civil War itself. So when Woodrow Wilson becomes an advocate for women's suffrage, he knows he's enfranchising African-American women. Now, of course, in the South, because of Jim Crow and poll taxes, the South will pretty readily disenfranchise those who legally should be able to vote. But at least on paper, black men and, and now African-American women will have the vote. And that's because of Woodrow Wilson. He's the one who really pushes that across the finish line. The 19th Amendment was officially adopted on August 26, 1920. But of course, that's not the end of the story. While the amendment was a major achievement, issues of voting rights and equal rights for all people were and are far from being resolved in this country. History is not a light switch. You don't, like, go, oh, let's all be good people now, switch. Every generation has its task. And we all, I like to think of we all push the marker forward. To make that perfectly clear, all one has to do is follow the soldiers home from World War I after the 1918 armistice. The U.S. Congress has voted a bonus for any person who served in the U.S. Armed Forces in an official capacity. Women who are in the Navy and the Marines, like all the men, of course, get victory medals, saying, yes, thank you for serving the country. They get hospitalization benefits if they've endured some sort of disability or injury. They get to join groups like the Veterans of Foreign Wars and Foreign Legion and these organizations that are formed around that same time. They get all of the kind of recognition and the literally monetary benefits that come to soldiers. The women who were in the U.S. Army come home and they find out that the Army does not consider them eligible for anything. 
The Army considers them soldiers up until the moment they are discharged. The minute they're out of the Army, the Army says, oh, well, wait a minute, you were contract employees. I've been in Army uniform for months now, and I've been trained, and I've been sworn into the Army. What do you mean I'm not Army? Of course, in France, the women would be told, well, you can't go home, you're in the Army now, you know, stay put until we tell you you can. General George Squire was one of those people who was shocked and dismayed and horrified that these women veterans who had served so honorably and so effectively, they didn't get the things that the men they served alongside did get. He several times petitioned Congress for the Veterans Medals, for the Victory Medal, for the disability benefits, for the bonuses that the men got, and each time was told no. The War Department did not support that effort. Ironically, by the way, the War Department was, is headed by a civilian. So within the Army itself, there was a much more favorable attitude towards the women and then in the administration at the executive level, which was supervising the Army, one might say. Beginning in the 1920s and then in the 1930s and in the 1940s and in the 1950s and in the 1960s and in the 1970s, these women get their local congressmen to introduce legislation. They write the presidents. They write Roosevelt and Truman and Eisenhower and Kennedy and Johnson and on all the way up through Jimmy Carter saying, all we want is to be recognized. So the Army just doesn't see them. And over time, the story gets fainter and fainter like a bad telephone transmission itself and the static crackles over and the story's lost altogether. They get to the point by the 1930s, they're telling women who write in and asking for their benefits, they're saying, well, you didn't even swear oaths. Now, all you have to do is look in the records, as I did, in the personal records, and there's oath upon oath upon oath upon oath upon Merle Egan became the leading voice in this charge. As a senior citizen, she was still seeking recognition for the Hello Girls. At some point, she writes to a friend that people sometimes ask me why I am still campaigning for this deep into my 80s, because I love my country, and so I want my country to be worth loving. Merle Egan would go to elementary schools, and she's made this doll. It's like a Barbie doll, and she sews a teeny tiny uniform, and she puts her old brass insignia on the cap, and she goes to school children. She wants to tell them the story of the Hello Girls so that somebody won't forget. People won't forget that there were these women who served in World War I. In July of 1975, the Seattle Times published an article on Merle Egan and her campaign. A young attorney named Mark Ho happened to catch this story in the newspaper. He reads this article and he calls her up and he says, I think you've got a legal case here. Do you need any help? And she says, well, yes, young man, I'd love that. So he assembles this case and begins to put it together and collects all this documentation. Meanwhile, there is parallel legislation that's underway in the U.S. Congress to acknowledge the women of World War II. These women also had been not recognized as veterans. So it's the Signal Corps telephone operators and the Women's Air Force service pilots of World War II on the same legislation. Mark Ho testifies to the U.S. Congress, and he makes this incredible legal argument, which essentially revolves around these uniforms. 
do you realize that it is against the law to impersonate an officer of the United States government? It's against the law to impersonate a police officer. So if your government, your federal government, gives you a uniform and tells you you must never take it off, you must never take off that uniform unless you're in bed with the door closed, you may never remove those dog tags, you have made them into representatives of the American government. You have made them into soldiers by telling them they must always wear this uniform. Essentially, he says, you know, we're prepared to sue. <laughs> and the U.S. Congress, you know, realizes that this is not only the right thing to do, but also the Hello Girls, as well as the women of World War II, have a pretty powerful legal argument. And so finally, in 1977, 60 years after the women were initially recruited, this legislation is passed. And then in 1979, they are finally given their discharge papers from World War I which entitled them to the flags on their coffin, to their victory medals. And Merle Egan, who gets her discharge papers at a formal ceremony in Seattle, Washington, she gives this great speech. She says, I'm so proud, I'm so excited, not only to receive my victory medal for serving in World War I, but I consider it a medal for having fought the U.S. Army for 60 years and winning. Merle Egan passed away in 1984. She was buried with military honors. In researching this topic, Elizabeth uncovered diary entries, letters, photographs, army gear, ephemera that in some cases had not been seen in 100 years. The National Archives has very, very recently released film footage, old archaic film footage of World War I. Grace Banker's granddaughter calls me one day. She says, I think I found my grandmother do you think this is Grace? And she sends me the link, and I go on it, and, I, and I've actually seen probably more photographs of Grace than she has in World War I. And I say, oh my gosh, of course, that's Grace. And she's talking and laughing and connecting phone calls. And then we get footage that shows, after the armistice, General Pershing at a reviewing stand with thousands of men lined up in these long lines, you know, that go off into the distance. And he's up there giving a speech to the men about, you know, this great victory. And it's because of you that this happens. We don't hear his voice. We just see him speaking because it's silent film. And in the front row of the reviewing stand are the women at attention in their uniforms in the front row. And then the army later can't see them, can't see them at all. They just vanish which is what I think has been the record of women in history and the people of color to it. It vanishes. Everybody knows it at the time, and then it's not documented and recorded. And so we think, well, maybe it wasn't very important. Maybe they didn't play a very significant role. Maybe it never really happened. We're all we people of modern political correctness. We're just kind of amping it up. But it's, they were there, and they did really important things. And, and if we take the time to look, we'll find them. Ephemeral is written and assembled by Alex and produced by Annie Reese, Matt Frederick, and Tristan McNeil, with technical assistance from Sherry Larson, 
And special thanks this episode to Gretchen Crary and Miranda Hawkins. Elizabeth Cobbs is the author of The Hello Girls, America's First Women Soldiers, which was adapted into a 2018 documentary. Her newest book is The Tubman Command, a novel following Harriet Tubman. Find links to all her work at elizabethcobbs.com and links to ours at ephemeral.show. And thanks to Werka's Folk and musical director Sandra Kerr for sharing their rendition of The March of the Women, a suffragist anthem composed by Ethel Smythe in 1910. Links on our website. Tudor sat down at the piano, placed the score in the stand, took out a stopwatch, and closed the lid over the keys. He started the stopwatch. Thirty seconds later, he opened the lid, then closed it back over the keys. He did the same thing two minutes and 23 seconds later, turning the pages of the score all the while, performing each of the actions as quietly as possible. And a minute and 40 seconds after that, he stood as if to receive applause. Visit us on the World Wide Web and interact with us on social media at the Femoral Show. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.